The following is a message by Dr. John Fesco from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that you've gathered us here uh, to take a brief moment out of our busy days uh, to, uh, to give attention to your word. We pray, therefore, that you would speak to us, not only through its reading, but also even uh, through its preaching, and that in this way you would bless us, that you would glorify you, uh, your name in our midst, and that you would further conform us to the image of your Son. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> The last time I was with you, I began uh, working on, if you will, the uh, brief series uh, for chapel, which is on the fruit of the Spirit. And so I gave a broad overview uh, uh, two weeks ago. And so this morning, I'd like to read Galatians uh, chapter 5, verses 22 uh, through 24, and then focus in upon what we would ostensibly call the first fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, in 1967, uh, the world witnessed the first live, televised, globally broadcast event, and that was the Beatles contributing for the United Kingdom with their song, All You Need Is Love. And it was watched uh, uh, as they uh, filmed this event live from the studios at Abbey Road, uh, where they sang their song, All You Need Is Love. And quite certainly, you perhaps know the song as it goes, uh, you know, uh, walking through your mind at this point, and perhaps now you'll be singing this song in your mind all the rest of the day. That is my small gift to you. Nevertheless, um, you know, you look around and people would say, well, certainly, you know, people love each other, and uh, I think love can solve a number of the world's problems. I think that was certainly the Beatles' intent when they uh, made that contribution, because at that time, the Vietnam War was raging, uh, and people were certainly uh, very concerned about uh, worldwide conflict and the like. Not to mention the fact that 1967 was also the year that brought us uh, one of the first Arab-Israeli conflicts with uh, the uh, Six-Day War. So that was some of the events that were going on. Well, to borrow a line from a recent popular movie, uh, love actually is all around, is what many would claim, and that the world is not a place devoid of love. Yet on the other hand, if we start to dig beneath the surface and take a close look as to what people say about love and how it's manifest in the world, we might begin to take and look at things a bit in a different way. If you look online, for example, you see all kinds of things flying under the banner of what we might call self-love. This past weekend, I noted in a sermon that I preached at my home church that in just a quick look at Amazon, uh, under the title, uh, the search self-love revealed uh, some 25 books all about self-love. How you can fall in love with you. 
uh, you know, Finding the Love of Your Life, You. I mean, these are some of the titles that you find. Uh, you see this uh, all over the place, YouTube videos, uh, where people post videos of themselves. And it's not just simply uh, videos of self-admiration, but it's, for example, where they'll bully other people and then put it up online showing how great they are. Facebook accounts loaded with pictures of us, of ourselves. Uh, blogs where people talk about themselves. A celebrity culture where people are famous simply for being famous. Uh, it's, it's a strange world in which we live. Uh, for some $3,500, you can pay a company in Los Angeles to have paparazzi follow you around. You can have your personal assistant uh, going to fend off the paparazzi. Why you would want to do this, I have no idea, other than the fact that we have a culture at this present moment that is infatuated with itself. It's infatuated with itself. If you want more insight into the nature of our culture, read Gene uh, Twangy's book on the narcissism epidemic. Highly, highly recommend it. Nevertheless, we might say, given this uh, self-loving uh, culture, that we find a significant uphill battle for trying to put forward the idea of a biblical understanding of love. Yet I think that when we take a closer look at what Paul has to say here about love, we should recognize that perhaps our love is certainly more out there, uh, much more easily publicly consumed, for example, because of the technology of the internet. But in terms of a culture of idolatry and an idolatry of self, I don't think that we have much over uh, Paul's own first century context. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And that's certainly true when you look at the broader context of Galatians. When Paul talks about the works of the flesh, we can say that many of the things that he lists there are ultimately a perversion of love, sexual immorality, sensuality, orgies, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. These are all in some way, some sort of failing at some level of what it means to love. And so in this respect, I think that Paul's words are still very relevant, no matter how advanced and how evolved we may think ourselves to be. And so what I'd like us to do, be it ever so briefly this morning, is look first of all as to where love originates, secondly, uh, to define what love is, and then thirdly, to take a look at love in action and primarily, at least here, from within the immediate context of Galatians. So first of all, the origins of love. As we seek to find where love comes from, we might be tempted to begin with an earthly understanding of what it means to love, to look to relationships, to look between uh, the relationship, say, between a parent and a child, uh, perhaps a relationship between a husband and wife. But where we must begin, I think, especially when we're talking about biblically what it means to love, is looking to God, as simple as that sounds. I think the scriptures present this to us when John says in 1 John 4, 8, very succinctly, yet obviously with a great deal of significance and depth, God is love. God is love. It's a simple, but yet nevertheless quite profound 
statement, one that we could expend many, many hours exploring and still never plumb the depths of what that statement means. I think we see something of the loving nature of our triune God at various points in the scripture, particularly, say, for example, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus recounts at a number of points his love for his Father. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Likewise, we see Jesus expressing his love for his Father. John chapter 14, verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, I don't have the time to explore the exegetical argument for it, but historically, going back to St. Augustine, it was the Holy Spirit who was called and has been called the bond of love between the Father and the Son. So that we can say, at, be, at least be it ever so briefly, that when we say that God is love, it is because chiefly and above all else, the triune God loves himself in the sense of the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son, that mutual Trinitarian bond of love. It is not a, an idolatrous love where one single individual simply looks into the mirror and falls in love with himself, as a narcissist might, but rather it is a love of otherness in the sense that it is the Father's love for the Son. Because though they be one God, though they be one God, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. In other words, we do not worship a Unitarian God, but a God who is three in person. God who is three in person. One in essence, but nevertheless three in person. And we can say, in this respect, that our triune God is the perfection of love. And that our triune God is therefore the source, the source of love. All right, keeping that in mind, then let's therefore ask, what does it mean to define love? How do we define it? How might we describe it? I think if you keep on this track of looking to God first as to how we understand love, we should recognize that Again, the triune God should be the foundation of our definition of love. Think of all of the statements in Scripture that I suspect that you are all familiar with, with wonder if you've ever strung them together as perhaps pearls on a necklace. The Father loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Son has loved us, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the Spirit, according to Paul, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Moreover, when you recall what the Apostle says in the opening chapter of Ephesians, Paul says that the Father predestined us and chose us in Christ in love. So once again, look not to below when you seek to understand what love is, but rather look up. Look to Christ as love has been chiefly revealed in him and given to us in him as it has come from our perfect 
loving triune God, the God who loves perfectly in and of himself. So if we seek to define love, therefore, I want us to recognize that love is not primarily a feeling or an emotion. It's not primarily a feeling or an emotion. In other words, what some people might describe love as is warm, fuzzy feelings. Love is, is fluffy puppies. Love is the writing of a seventh grade girl who dots her eyes with hearts. That's what love is. Not quite. As tempting as such definitions may be. Moreover, if I can throw a theological hand grenade into the chapel, give you something, in other words, I pull the pin, throw it, it goes off, and I walk away. You figure it out later. The term and the word emotion didn't even enter into our vocabulary into the 19th century. It's a, it's a word of relative recent development. What words have we used before? That's the grenade. It goes off. Nevertheless, don't think of love primarily as an emotion. Does it have an affective dimension? Yes. I think at times it most certainly has an affective dimension. In other words, it has feeling, if you will, that attends it. I suspect that if you met the love of your life, and you married the love of your life, and as you looked at the love of your life, and you looked at her or looked at him, and you felt nothing, then I'd say that something was wrong. It's not simply a cold relational kind of thing where you say, hello, I, I love you. I'm simply not moved, but I do love you. Here are these flowers I'm supposed to give these to you, I guess. You'd say, what's wrong with you? Do you, have, do you have some sort of love lobotomy? I mean, you know, something's obviously gone wrong. But if we're talking about what the Bible has to say about love, it is not primarily an emotion, but rather it is action. It is something that we do. In that respect, we can say quite simply that love is a verb. In particular, I found this definition helpful. It comes from the Oxford English Dictionary. And sadly, it is the second entry, not the first. But the second entry, it says, in a religious use, the benevolence and affection of God towards an individual or towards creation. We certainly see some of that in the passages that we looked at. Also, the affectionate devotion due to God from an individual. Devotion due to God from an individual. Regard and consideration of one human being towards another, prompted by a sense of common relationship to God. Devotion to God and common consideration for another. Now, maybe that lacks some of the pizzazz that we might think when we begin to talk about love, but I do think it gets to the very essence as to what love is. And we see this chiefly in Christ's interaction with his Father. He says in John 14, 31, that he does as the Father has commanded him. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. One of the biggest lies that the world will tell the church and to tell you is that moral obligation and love are mutually exclusive. It's a lie from the pit of hell. 
to say, you can't command me to love you. The Bible would say, I beg to differ. And in fact, when you take a look, for example, what has been called the Magna Carta of the Old Testament, Israel's founding covenant document, which is essentially the book of Deuteronomy, God's renewal of his covenant with his people, Old Testament scholars primarily describe this as a massive narrative, in a sense, that features the love of a son for his father. When Jesus was asked, what is the first and great commandment? Love the Lord your God, quoting Deuteronomy, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love and obligation. God commands love. And it's our responsibility to love him. Now, I don't want to say that, that it should be any, an, an effective less experience. I hope and pray that for each one of us, as we would seek to love God by showing him through obeying his will, that it would be something that would fill us with joy, with great satisfaction, with great uh, contentment. And as much as maybe I'm not fond of the word, even with significant emotion. But beloved, recognize that love lies at the heart of the law. What Calvin once called the Ten Commandments, saying that it's the rule of love. So if you want to know what love is, look at the Decalogue. Look at the Ten Commandments. Now as to how this manifests, thirdly and lastly, we want to see love in action. It's one thing to recognize its source. It's one thing to describe and define it. But we don't want to remain abstract. It's important that we see how it looks in action. And within Paul's immediate context here in Galatians chapter 5, it's important that you kind of fan out to see where, if you will, love has its legs. Because I think what leads up to Paul's explanation here and exposition about the fruit of the Spirit is the fact that he calls the Galatians in Galatians 5, 6, to love. He says in the sixth verse of chapter 5, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He's calling them to love. And note, it's not a perversion of the law that he's calling them to, which is not love. In other words, placing too much weight upon circumcision, as in the case of the Judaizers. He calls them to love, to yield to God's word regarding the elimination of circumcision, not giving it too much weight, and he calls them to love one another, verses 13 and following, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Notice what he says here is that if you, in a sense, fulfill what the true calling of the law is, then there is no law against love. Augustine's famous statement comes to mind. And misunderstood, it can lead to all kinds of problems. Properly understood, as Paul expounds it here, it means something quite profound. Augustine said, love, 
and do what you will. Love and do what you will. If you are truly manifesting the biblical doctrine of love, then you will not only pour out your life as uh, an acceptable offering to God, as the Apostle Paul did, but you will sacrificially give of yourself to others. And there's no law against that. Love and do what you will. And notice, even within, again, the broader context here, as the concrete command, if you will, that Paul gives to uh, the Galatians, he says in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I think in this regard, we should recognize that I think the reason that Paul lists love first is in a sense because all of the other fruits of the Spirit are derivative of it. He says, with the person that has sinned against you, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I think so often because the church, as we as the church, we live in a very um, self-centered age. In her book, uh, Dr. Twenge says that many portions of the church essentially feed into the narcissistic culture that we have because they cater everything to the, to, to, the, to the person that comes to the church rather than you know, orienting the people to others. So that when it comes time to seek to forgive somebody, you're like, why should I forgive that person? Would you be able to forgive somebody who committed great evil against you? That is Paul's point. That's the nature of love. Never forget reading about Corey Ten Boom, how a man approached her after one of her talks. And it happened to be one of the guards at one of the prison camps. And he sought her forgiveness. How do you forgive someone for such a horrendous act of inhumanity, of treating people like cattle to the slaughter, even your own family. And yet, by the grace of God, she was able to love this man and to forgive him. Such is the nature of love. Such is Paul's instruction here to the Corinthians. I'm sorry, to the Galatians, as to the Corinthians as well. So, beloved, I ask you very simply, will you love? Will you obey and love our triune God, remembering that only the ability to love God comes from God? Will you meditate upon God's law day and night as the psalmist does? Will you love your neighbor as yourself? Remember, love is the fruit of the Spirit. The source of our love is the triune God. He's poured out love in our hearts through Christ and through the Spirit. As John writes in 1 John 4, 9 and following, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Such is the nature of love, the first fruit of the Spirit. So I give you the words of St. Augustine, beloved. Love and do what you will. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Father God, our hearts are cold-hearted, turned in on themselves. And apart from your grace, we would set ourselves up as idols uh, to be worshipped. But you have broken 
through the wall of sin and blindness and deafness. You have taken our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. We pray, O Lord, that you would enable us to love, to love you above all others, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And in this way, that the world around us would know us by our love. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.